I'm Lillian Voskis with Lifestyles on KVCR. Thanks for listening. On today's show, I'll speak with actor, author, and activist Ed Bagley Jr. You may remember Ed from television programs like St. Elsewhere in the 80s and more recently with Better Call Saul or Young Sheldon. Ed talks about some of his acting roles, his game night with the Clintons, and his time on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, as well as his memoir, To the Temple of Tranquility and Step on It. In it, he shares many stories of his escapades with celebrities and talks about his drug and alcohol addiction. Recently, Ed was honored by Writers in Treatment at the 13th Annual Experience, Strength, and Hope Awards for his service to the recovery community. Comedian Paula Poundstone hosted the event. Here's my conversation with actor, author, and activist Ed Begley, Jr. Welcome. I'm so excited to speak with you because I love having conversations with seasoned actors. Well, I'm so happy to talk to you. I love NPR, and I told you an NPR station. Did I hear right? That's right. You certainly did. We're happy to be the Inland Empire station here in Southern California. That's great. Good on you. Okay, so you shared a lot in your book and some serious stuff to share. You were 15 when you learned the woman you thought was your mother was not your mother. From 67 to 79, drugs and alcohol were a big part of your life, and so much more was shared. But I have to mention your book had some funny lines throughout it, including the title of the book, To the Temple of Tranquility and Step on It. Tell me your thoughts about choosing this title. Well, it was a line that actually was uttered by a wonderful actor named Dick Stahl. And he was, like me, quite smitten with the Beatles. And when they discovered the Maharishi, that really captured a lot of our interest. So he couldn't get to the Maharishi. Dick Stahl could not. But he managed to get to this ashram. He had heard about it. He contacted this ashram, and they were willing to see him and give him some lessons. And so he planned this precise trip, leaving from Los Angeles, going to Hawaii, then transferring to a boat in the Philippines, and everything went wrong, so he was late, and he hit monsoon season, and he missed the boat, and he missed the plane, so when he finally got to the island where the ashram sat, he ran up the dock, jumped into a little taxi, and said to the driver, said, to the Temple of Tranquility, and step on it. (laughs) I love it. It was so good. I thought that was pretty funny, and so did I. And so did everybody that heard it. I thought it, the idea of rushing tranquility seems pretty funny to me. Yeah, I love it. All right. Let's talk about your book and some of the uh, stories you shared. As I mentioned, from 67 to 79, drugs and alcohol were a big part of your life. And some nights you seem to consume so much alcohol and drugs. As a reader, I was wondering how you were able to function. Based on what I read, do you feel like you're a lucky guy to be alive? Very lucky to be alive. I drank a quart of vodka nearly every day, 1971 to 1979. I did plenty of drugs before that, but I, my vodka consumption was about a quarter day for seven years there. And I took lots of pills and did cocaine, and I operated a vehicle, Lillian. How I didn't kill myself, that would have been one thing and quite fitting. But if I had killed someone else or injured a family or something, God help me, that just would have been the worst thing that could have happened, of course. And Thank God it did not. I got sober, and uh, I sit here this day thanks to the the smart move of getting away from that horrible behavior. Yeah, and I'm going to talk about that and some of the people that were involved in your world that maybe were by your side. 
In your book, you mention a lot of celebrities, and I'm not saying you were name dropping, but I loved it because there were so many people in your career, including Cindy Williams, Carrie Fisher, Bruno Kirby, Marlon Brando, Jack Nicholson, Cher, and the list went on and on. But I'm wondering if you could share a couple of stories specifically about Bruno Kirby, who many may know from City Slickers, or Carrie Fisher, who many may know from Star Wars. I've never seen Star Wars, but I do I do remember her from and loved her in Harry Met Sally, or Cindy Williams as a part of Laverne and Shirley. Would you mind sharing maybe a story or two about one of them or a couple of them? I'd be happy to. These women were very powerful figures in my life. I met Cindy Williams on a show called Room 222. I remember I was, it. Uh, <laughs> You remember that show? Oh, you're too young to remember that, but somehow you saw it on Nick at Night or something, I suppose. Yeah, okay. But it was a wonderful show, and uh, I worked on that the first time in 1969, I think. Then again and again, I did about seven episodes, and I met Cindy at the Christmas party one year for that wonderful show, and I was just smitten with her. She was a wonderful actress. She was a wonderful person. So I asked her out on a date, but I had a very primitive electric car back then, Lillian, it had a top speed of about 15 miles per hour, <laughs> and I hadn't fully charged it. So when we got to the restaurant I had invited to dine with me at, I think there was a butterfly passing us by. There was a kid on big wheel out gunning us. So uh, I didn't get a second date. It wasn't exactly a babe magnet. But I, you know, I kept driving electric cars, and she and I, though we never had a romantic relationship, we were very, very close, and she was like my sister, Tushy sadly passed about a year ago. We've lost her and Penny Marshall. Okay, and go on, maybe Bruno or Carrie Fisher, two others that we've lost. Bruno Kirby I met at an actor's audition. You know, back in the day, you'd be there reading for a part of the gas station attendant or the, you know, the bellhop or the, the waiter or what have you. And they'd have many different types. It wouldn't be all just tall blonde guys. It'd be me and then Bruno Kirby and then, you know, Jamie Cromwell and all these different people that are still working to this day. But I met Bruno there, and he and I had so much in common. He was the son of an actor. He was the son of a wonderful actor named Bruce Kirby. And he was back then Bruce Kirby Jr. And he started to do more serious work and more serious work. He was in The Godfather Part Two. He was in Donnie Brasco. He was in City Slickers. When Harry met Sally, he and Carrie Fisher both were in that. Yes. And meeting Carrie Fisher was a, also a wonderful, big, welcome change in my life. She was, you know, of course, the daughter of Debbie Reynolds. And I went over there with my dad to visit these new friends of his because he had done a movie called Unsinkable Molly Brown. And so we go over to this house that uh, Carrie Fisher and Debbie Reynolds and Todd Fisher and Harry Carl lived in. He was a big shoe magnate. This guy, Harry Carl, he owned a chain of shoe stores. He was quite wealthy. As it turns out, not so much. He exactly. At all. He went he went to Vegas and lost whatever money he had and his company had, went bankrupt and lost a lot of Debbie's money as well. She used to have to go to Vegas and do shows just to begin to pay down the debt of his markers from the craft stable. Yeah. So I get a little exposure to the downside of gambling because I was an, an addict in many other areas too. I was a gambling addict. I was a philanderer. I was an alcoholic and a drug addict. And so anything that one could be addicted to, it seemed I was... I was down with it, but it's, it's no way to live, and you can't trade one addiction for another. I certainly tried it for quite a while, hoping it would work, and it never did. 
Now, your time with Carrie Fisher, I know you went over to her home for, as I read in the book, for the holidays, I think, and and I think Debbie Reynolds, who I absolutely adored, gave you a gift that she'd only known you for just a short time? Yeah, she had a case of them, transistor radios. This is 1965, I believe. And she says, oh, Ed, get your kids over here. I've got gifts for them, too. And she has, she goes into the kitchen, comes back with this case of something, and it's transistor radios, like little Sony radios. I couldn't believe it. I mean, I, I said, Dad, we got to move over this side of the hill where the proper people live. We live in the valley, and I never got a gift like that in my life. I was just blown away by it. And, of course, there was so much important stuff going on there between me and Carrie over the long run because she, when she got sober, she went into rehab. I was one of the people she called up to talk about sobriety with because she knew I had been sober for years at the point when she got sober finally. Uh And out of that came the wonderful book, Postcards from the Edge, and many other books in her great writing career. She had several great careers as an actress, a writer. Uh, She's a brilliant woman and a dear, dear friend, and we miss her still. I think you were in the hospital, and Bruno Kirby was one of the friends that came to see you in the hospital. Bruno Kirby not only came to see me, right after I got injured, he was there within an hour of me being injured. I was working at the Ice House, and I went out between sets, and I tried to go to some party in Hollywood. What a metaphor that was, trying to do too much and hoping the next party would fix it. Mm. But I I turned around, went back to the Ice House where I belonged because I had a second set to do, and somebody ran a red light, and I had a broken femur. And as I said, Bruno was there within the hour, and he took care of me there in the hospital. By that, I mean the doctors and nurses took care of me, but he came every day brought me nutritious food. He picked up my mail. He went to the bank for me to put different, you know, residual checks or disability checks in. I never met anybody like that. You know, I'm wondering, what's this guy's angle? What does he want out of me? He didn't want anything from me. He just got so much joy from giving to other people. So generous with every single person I ever met. He died in 2006, and everybody still talks about Bruno. He was loved by thousands of thousands of people that I know in and out of the film industry. And his brother, John, carries on the fine work as an actor and an acting teacher. He's one of the great acting coaches and teachers in Los Angeles, John Kirby, Bruno's brother. I know I always enjoyed a movie or whatever Bruno Kirby was in. He just came across so well and so inviting, especially enjoyed him in Harry Met Sally and City Slickers and so many others. All right, I'm going to turn it a little bit and ask you about playing Trivia Pursuit with the Clintons. Tell me about that night. Well, Mary Steenburgen and Malcolm McDowell, this is before she married Ted, years before that. She's married to a wonderful actor named Malcolm McDowell, very funny man and a dear friend of mine. And we had moved up to Ojai because of Malcolm and Mary, really. My wife and I came for a visit. Next thing you know, there was a realtor that popped around, and we went and saw some homes and moved up there in 1984. And we had two wonderful kids that we raised up there. And one day they said, you know, we've got some friends that are in town. They're going to be staying in the guest room where you guys stayed at before you bought your home here. And uh, they wanted to play Trivia Pursuit with you. I said, sure. Who is it? Oh, it's the governor and first lady of the state of uh, Arkansas, where I'm from. I go, wait a minute. They're talking about the Clintons. He wasn't president yet at this <laughs> point. This is like 85. But yeah. what a smart man. What a smart lady. Good Trivia Pursuit players. But their memory, I would for years, because... <laughs> We won the final wedge with a question about Pope Pius XII or something. 
it was up for interpretation what the answer could be. And so we answered, uh, fortunately, what was on the card, but there was certainly another answer that might have been considered valid. And so that's what the Clintons put forward was, was the correct answer. And we were victorious because it was the one that was printed on the card. But for years, <laughs> lots of other things to worry about. I'd run into Bill Clinton or Hillary, and they would remember the question for which we won the final wedge. <laughs> but more importantly, they would remember that I showed them the first electric car, and they were just incredible friends and wonderful people, and I, I was very lucky to know them. I love the idea that you beat the Clintons in Trivia Pursuit. Okay, I attended Valley College in the San Fernando Valley before transferring to CSUN. Tell me about your time there. Was this where you were gaining your acting skills and building some professional relationships? I was. I started there in 1967, and I got great training as an actor and as a cameraman. I wanted to be an actor, but the phone wasn't ringing off the hooks. I've always liked camera work. I always was fascinated with it on the set with my dad. So I went, okay, if the acting isn't happening, I'll study more and learn more about cinematography. And I did. And I actually even got into the camera union, which is a union called NABET, National Mm -hmm. Association of Broadcasting Engineers and Technicians. Can we talk for a second about your relationship with your dad, who was Ed Begley Sr., of course, and I remember him fondly in a favorite musical of mine, The Unsinkable Molly Brown. Tell me about your relationship with your dad. You know, I had a great relationship as a young man with him. He was gone a great deal, but that's just the way things worked for a lot of families back then. The man would be off working for the most part. Women were not as welcome in the workplace back then, sadly. So my dad was gone a lot, and I just kind of accepted it and saw the benefits that came with it. But occasionally he'd take me with him on the road to different plays like uh, Look Homeward Angel or Advisor Consent. I would be tagging along with him going backstage and feeling that incredible energy, you know, going back on the train to the next city and, you know, on to the next theater. And I just was quite smitten with it. So I wanted to do what my dad did. I'm convinced to this day, if my dad had been a plumber, I'd be fitting pipe now. You know, I just wanted to do what he did. He made it look so easy. Did your dad ever get to see your success? I know St. Elsewhere, as Dr. Victor Ehrlich was one of the big shows that you did. Did he ever get to see some of your success or big success? Sadly, he saw no real success of any sort as an actor, but he did see me become successful as a cameraman, specifically a camera assistant. I got that training at Valley College in the San Fernando Valley, and for like $12 a semester, you could learn from Peter Gibbons, who was head of the camera department at uh, CBS Radford there, CBS Studio Center, they called it back then. We got incredible, like UCLA Film School-level training from this great, great teacher, Mm. a real-world cameraman. So I, as I said earlier, I got in the union and worked, and my dad got to see me on the set. He would occasionally... Can I drop you at work, Eddie? I said, hell yes. I hadn't been taking the bus. <laughs> he dropped me at work, and I'd see him go over. He'd be talking to some of the other crew members. And I'd later find out, what, my, what was my dad asking about? They'd say, he asked if you're any good, if you're doing a good job or mm. how you were. And he told him the truth is that you're a very good assistant cameraman. Oh, good. So he was very proud. I could see him walking back to his car, waving at me, and he was as proud as I've ever seen him. He didn't care what I did in the business or any business. I'm sure he didn't mind if I went into law or medicine or, you know, any other field. He just wanted me to to love what I did and get good at it. And he got to see that, thank God, before he passed in 1970. Good. Very good. 
Okay, so I did mention St. Elsewhere. I remember you from St. Elsewhere. Uh, it was a great show. I fondly remember you now more recently as one of the professors on Sheldon. But what I want to talk to you about was your time on The Tonight Show. I used to love to watch The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. And you, again, people must have known you were good at Trivia Pursuit because Johnny asked you some questions. Do you remember that time? I remember it very well. And then I've recently had the pleasure of seeing these videos. Somebody would send me a link and I'd watch it. I'd go, oh, my God, look how young I am. Look (laughs) how sharp I was back then. I could answer these things quickly. But uh, it was great to see Johnny ask me right off the cuff, with no preparation. He'd pull a card out and ask a question. And fortunately, whatever he asked, I got lucky and got it right. I don't think it was lucky. I think you knew the answers right off the get-go. And then I loved when you asked him a question and his look that he gives, you know, pans to the camera and gives that look that he had. And you were still very young in your career. And you were very engaging and active and funny. Thank you for that, first of all, Lillian. That's very kind of you to say. But there's such a gift that came with that silly game, Trivial Pursuit, and here's what it was. Prior to that, I was convinced, because lots of people told me so, that I was an idiot. You know, oh. The different nuns and what have you, people that schooled me as a young man. And I must bear some responsibility. I was always daydreaming. You know, come on, you're an idiot. You're not paying attention here. Look over here. Look at the blackboard. And I was always daydreaming, looking out the window. And so... I was convinced I was an idiot until this game, Trivial Pursuit, came along. I realized I knew all the answers. And it was then that I discovered every single thing that they were saying, the nuns were saying, rambling on about at the blackboard. I heard every word of it. I was just daydreaming looking out the window. Yeah. But I heard and retained all of it. I think that's more of a brilliant mind. Your mind was drifting, but you were listening to everything. I see that a lot in autism, that people think they're not listening, but they're hearing everything, absorbing. That's exactly what you are doing. Now, I think you have a brilliant mind. Some of those questions. No, I'm very serious. That trivia pursuit, it's darn hard. And trying to get all those pies can be challenging. So I want to get serious for a little bit here and talk about getting clean and sober. It seems like you tried to, to go cold turkey on some occasions. And the other thing I want to ask is, does every alcoholic or addict need a Billy Boyle? I think so. Billy Boyle was a great influence on me in the 12-step program that I chose. You know, there's an old saying, I can't, but we can. And so sometimes a group, you know, you have more than one gathered in pursuit of sobriety. The sum is greater than the individual parts. You know, one and one equals three sometimes. And that's what happened with me and Billy Boyle. He was a guy that was just fed up with me and seen me come and go. It was highly critical of me, which was every bit as powerful, perhaps more so than the people that were still, oh, I love you, Ed, let me help you here, I'll bail you out, I'll do this, I'll do that. Billy was kind of over me one day. I had come to a 12-step meeting for, I guess, the fourth time, you know, beaten and more, you know, battered than the time before. And walking in the meeting, this guy, Billy Boyle, says, hey, Slim, how you doing? What is this, your fourth time through the revolving door here? Said, I'm not keeping count, Billy, but thanks. <laughs> said, oh, you know what? Let me tell you something you may not be aware of. You're never going to get sober. I said, Billy, what a terrible thing to say. Why would you say something like that? You're supposed to be encouraging people walking into this meeting. He said, because it's true. Don't you have an apartment in Larchmont? I said, I do. You married to Gretchen still? I said, her name's Ingrid, but yeah, we're married. You got a kid? I said, I got a couple of kids. You're working over somewhere. What are you working on? I said, I'm doing Battlestar Galactic. He went, oh, Christ, you're screwed. 
So what do you mean I'm screwed? It all sounds pretty good to me. He said, you're never going to get sober because you haven't lost anything. Mm. And you will. You lose it all if you keep drinking. Here's the new deal, my friend. You listen to me. I'm going to come over there. I'm going I'm to kick your ass. By the way, Billy is about 5'2", 130 pounds. I'm, <laughs> at the time, 200 pounds and six foot four. So, okay, Billy, what's this now? You're going to kick my ass? I said, yeah, you're going to call me before you drink. Or I'm going to go come over to your place. I'm going to kick your ass. You hear me? You commit to it right now. I swear to God, I'm going to do it right now. Billy, just calm yourself. You're going to have a heart attack. Okay, I'll call you before I drink next time. Thanks, Billy. Can I go in the meeting now? Yeah, go right ahead. So one thing leads to another, and sometimes the bad thing will make an alcoholic drink, and sometimes a good thing, and this was a good thing. Mm. I was cast in a movie with Peter Falk and Alan Arkin called The In-Laws. I'm there at LAX. It's early in the morning. It's 8 in the morning, and they're opening up the bar, and I go, I can't take it. I can't take the pressure. i got to calm down. I'm going to blow it. I'm going to ruin this movie. I'm going to ruin this part. I'm going to get fired. i got to have a drink. Barkeep, yeah, give me a Bloody Mary, please. I ordered a Bloody Mary, I put it to my lips, and I stopped. Mm. Billy Boyle. There's no cell phones back then, Lillian, so right. i got to go over to a pay phone just a few feet away, dial up Billy Boyle. Hello, who the hell is this calling me at this hour? Said Begley, but you told me to call. Oh, Begley, where are you? Sounds like you're at the airport. I said, I am. Where are you headed? I said, Cuernavaca. But you said to call you before I drink, and I'm about to drink, and so I called you, okay? Okay, I hear it's really nice there this time. I, you know, I said, yeah, whatever you say, I'm going to drink. He said, you call me when you get there. Maybe you don't understand, Billy. I'm about to drink right now. You said to call you. What the hell is this about? Also, by the way, I'm looking at my boarding pass. I'm in first class, so I'm going to drink every free drink they give me, which are probably about four or five of them. And you're telling me about the weather in Cuernavaca. He said, you're not going to drink. I said, I am going to drink. You're not going to drink. I said, why am I not going to drink? He said, because you called me, hmm. you moron. If you wanted to drink, you would have had the drink. You wouldn't have called me. You would have just picked up the drink and taken it. But you didn't take that drink. You know why? Because you don't want to drink. The reason you walked in that first meeting, when I saw you there in that first meeting, you know where you walked in there, Mr. Smarty Pants? You walked in there because you don't want to drink. Or you wouldn't have walked in the meeting. Like I said, call me when you get there. And he hung up on me. <laughs> oh, my. Lillian, I didn't take that drink. I stayed sober, and Billy Boyle was uh, the guy that really did that for me. He was a remarkable guy that saved thousands and thousands of people, you know, that I'm aware of in the program. So I'm just still touched by his kindness and his his wonderful manner that seemed gruff, but it was, I guess, what they call tough love now for a yeah, while. Yeah. But he had it, and it worked, and it got thousands of people sober. So God bless him. For sure. Can we talk about your Parkinson's and how you've come out about it? Yeah, I got Parkinson's certainly as far back as 2004, probably earlier, but, but I didn't know what it was. I thought I had a brain lesion. And finally, 2016, other things occurred that made it clear that I did indeed have Parkinson's. I saw two top neurologists mm-hmm. and they confirmed it. To be honest with you, Lillian, I didn't think I'd have but like three years to go from that kind of diagnosis because my friend Bob Hoskins, the wonderful actor Bob Hoffman yes. passed away yes. three years from diagnosis to death, just three years. I thought, I, not thought, I said to the neurologist, do you think I can squeak three years out of this? He says, why are you planning on somebody dropping a safe on your head or something? You're going to live for another decade or two or three, mm. depending on how you regard the rest of your lifestyle. And I thought he was just trying to make me feel good. But here it is, 
2016 when I finally got diagnosed. That's eight years later. I'm doing great. I'm riding my bike. I'm going to the gym every day, eating healthy. The neurological experts give you drugs like dopamine-based drugs. Right. Helpful, a great deal for someone who has Parkinson's. But for extra credit, I also do things like stem cells, and I do glutathione, and I do mm. hyperbaric chamber, mm. and something called NAD. NAD has helped me a lot, too. All those different things help a lot. Vigorous exercise, good diet. And here I am eight years later, actually 20 years from when I really had it, but I just kept riding my bike and eating healthy, and I didn't know I had it for another many years. Very good. Ed, why did you decide to write the book? It was really because of my daughter's interest. My daughter, I'm not the first person in America whose daughter came up or her grandchild came up and said, Pops, can I record some of these stories about how you were in a kid? Did you play football with a leather helmet? What was life like before they had movable type and talkies? <laughs> Tell me a little bit about coming through Ellis Island. <laughs> Get all these questions from me. I said, okay, I'll try to answer them. But after an hour, you know, her arm was getting tired holding the phone up, you know, for this interview. She had other things to do, and I went, let me take some more notes for her so it's not all on her with her holding the phone up to my face. And I started to take notes, and that's when it happened, Lillian. That wonderful thing for a writer of a biography or anything, you go, I don't want to give this to anyone else. I love my daughter, but I, you know, the keyboard became like a Ouija board that mm. actually worked, mm. you know, that took me to this room and that room, old rooms of the attic of my mind I hadn't visited in years, different events that happened. And uh, I started to write things down, and pretty soon I had like 45 pages of a book. I had four or five chapters written already without really wanting to. Hmm. And I stayed with it. And in about three months, I did 80% of the book. Another three months, I did the remaining 20%. Hmm. And I just loved the process of writing it. If no one buys it, if no one reads it, I'm just happy I did it for my kids and grandkids. But I'm very happy to say that everybody that's read it, and there are thousands of people that have bought it and read it, and they really all enjoyed it. I liked it because it was an easy read. You didn't go deep. You stayed right there telling you people exactly how it is, telling good stories and funny stories, some challenging stories as well. Ed Begley, Jr., thank you so much for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you. Lillian, it's been a delight talking to you. For more information about Ed Begley, Jr., visit us at kvcrnews.org lifestyles and click on today's show. That's our show for this week. To hear any of our past shows, check out our archives at kvcrnews.org lifestyles or listen to Lifestyles on the KVCR app. You can also listen to Lifestyles on your favorite streaming service. Search for Lifestyles with Lillian Vasquez and take the show on the go. Lifestyles is on Facebook and Instagram. Thanks to all who helped to make this show possible, including Sharina Wad, David Fleming, Sean Houlihan, and executive producer Rick Duloc. Our theme music is provided by Ethan Bortnick. And I just want to wish all of you a very happy holiday season. Merry Christmas. And plan to join me next week at the same time for Lifestyles with me, Lillian Vasquez. Bye for now.